0: All right, I hope you're happy to be in the house of the Lord today. God is good. And um, we are about to get into part three of our sermon series on the book of Revelation. Part three of our sermon series on the book of Revelation. Um, The Chronicles of Narnia is one of my favorite books of all time. Uh, Chronicles of Narnia, written by C.S. Lewis, it's a masterpiece. Uh, The Chronicles of Narnia is actually a seven book set and I recently read through all seven books actually a couple of years ago I read through all seven books to my daughter uh, just in our nightly time uh, together. Um, When you get to book seven there's a change. Uh, In each of the first six books there's a problem in Narnia, there's some enemy that's come against Narnia, there's some disruption uh, to the peace of Aslan, Aslan is the great lion And so what Aslan does is he invites over his children, his friends from another realm, from another dimension, from our world, and he brings them into Narnia and he gives them a great task and he empowers them with wisdom and strength and knowledge uh, to restore order and to bring peace and to vanquish the enemy. And so in the first six books, uh, the servants of Aslan, the children of Aslan, they go about bringing and restoring peace and order to the land of Narnia, and then he sends them back to their own world after it's all over. But book seven is different. When you get to book seven of the Chronicles of Narnia, the deception, the uh, attack, the tribulation and the trials go to another level. So much so that even though Aslan has brought over his children and invited them into to participate with him in this journey, Nothing they do is able ultimately to restore order and to restore peace to Narnia. And I kept expecting, when I was reading book 7, I kept expecting Aslan to give them the right wisdom or something to fall into place. But nothing ever does until Aslan himself comes on the scene. And in book 7, he sets everything right. But not only does he set everything right, but he brings about a a new heaven and a new earth. And he brings about the final judgment. And the whole point of book 7 is that you've moved from tribulation, which you have in books 1 through 6, into great tribulation. In other words, in great tribulation that you find in book 7, the trial is so great, the problem is so great, the pressure is so intense that only Aslan himself can fix it. And when he comes to fix it, he's not simply fixing the current world, but he's actually bringing about a new heaven and a new earth and he brings about a final judgment. And uh, man, I, I was, it just hit, it just, my wife and I have been talking about the Chronicles of Narnia, um, but it, it just, some of those scenes just hit me so hard as I read the book of Revelation. I'm like, I can see what inspired C.S. Lewis to write what he wrote um and so the title of my sermon is book seven and the whole point of the passage of scripture we're going to look at in revelation chapter seven verses nine through 17 is that we're in book seven now that's the whole point this is not books one through six this is book seven um so we're going to read this passage together uh first before we get there um Understand that there's two great visions in chapter 7 of the book of Revelation, and the two visions belong together. In the first vision, whoops, sorry, I'm working with multiple screens here at the same time. In the first vision in Revelation 7, John says, After these things I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of heaven, that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on on on, on any tree. Now, these four winds are actually winds of judgment that are supposed to blow on the earth. But the angels are restraining them, holding them back, which means that the final judgment of God is being restrained. Okay? Verse 2, Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. This is extremely important for us to understand. The seal of the living God. And he cried with, with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have us look at this together. He cried saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Okay? So the judgment is being withheld until the servants of God are sealed. Now remember last week we looked at Revelation chapter 5 and there was a book in the right hand of him who sat on the throne and it was sealed with seven seals. In the ancient world, emperors had a signet ring which they would seal documents with, and no one could break the imperial seal. If you broke the imperial seal, it was punishable by death. You brought all, and so literally, if an emperor sent a messenger, he didn't have to send an army with him, he didn't have to send an escort with him. As long as the messenger had a document with the imperial seal on it, no one would touch him. He could cross the world and no one would touch him because he bears the seal of the emperor, right? And no one could break the seal except the one to whom the letter was addressed, right? So here in Revelation 7, the first thing John sees is that the final judgment is being withheld until all of the servants of God get sealed on their foreheads the seal of God on their foreheads. Meaning, not every. what it literally means is right now, what's happening right now is the final judgment of God is being withheld until the full number of those who are coming to faith in Jesus Christ comes into place. Literally, God is waiting for more people to get saved, for more people to hear the message, for more people to receive Jesus as Lord and Savior, for more people to come to faith in Him. And here's the beauty, that when you come to faith in Jesus, when you come into the kingdom of God, you receive on your forehead the seal of the living God. You can't see it in the natural, you can't see it in the flesh, but in the spirit, there's a seal of the living God that's placed on you. That is God takes his signet ring and impresses it into your forehead, which means number one, you are divinely protected. The enemy cannot break the seal. Just like the scroll that was sealed with seven seals in the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And John said, I wept because no one was found worthy to break the seals. The enemy, when he looks at your life, he weeps because he cannot break the seal. The enemy is not able to break the seal. And so it speaks to divine protection, number one. And number two, it speaks to endurance and perseverance in the face of persecution. So number one, you are protected from the wrath of God. When we are sealed, it means we are protected from the wrath of God, which means that when you read the book of Revelation and you see all of the wrath of God being poured out, you don't have to fear it because you've been sealed. But it also means when you read the book of Revelation and you see all the persecution that is to come, you don't have to fear it. Because you have been sealed. That is, you are more protected than you can imagine and you have more endurance than you can imagine. And oftentimes we think about persecution and we're scared to death because we don't know if we can handle it. Let me tell you something. The seal of the living God is on your forehead. The seal of the living God is on you. You are his purchased possession. You are sealed. And because you are sealed... You are protected, and you have the power to endure through whatever comes. Okay, so now that we've got that in order, we're going to go to our main passage of Scripture. I'm going to read the whole passage, then we're going to come back and break it down piece by piece. Here it is. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. Verse 11. All the angels stood around the throne, and the elders and the four living creatures, and fell on their faces before the throne, and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom. Thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Verse 13. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these? Arrayed in white robes. And where did they come from? And I said to him, Sir, you know. So he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They shall neither hunger anymore nor thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat. For the Lamb, who is in the midst of the throne, will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of waters, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. I I think I just want to stop and pray for a moment, Father. I pray, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That you would reveal to us the reality that is behind these words. That you would give us the revelation of the victory that is in Christ Jesus. I pray for everyone who feels defeated today. I pray for everyone who feels discouraged today. I pray for everyone who feels confused today. I pray for everyone who feels confused, discouraged, depressed, and defeated. In Jesus' name That you would reveal to us, that you would grant today a revelation of the victory of the Lamb and the victory of his people. I speak your blessing over your people today in Jesus' name. Amen. I got to blow my nose, at least wipe it. (sighs) Amen. All right, starting at verse 9. After these things, I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number. First of all, stop there. After these things, I looked, and behold. The first is a statement of his experience. I looked. The second is an invitation to the hearer. And behold. John says, after these things, I looked, now you look. And this is what the book of Revelation is all about. John says, this is what I saw, but now I'm inviting you to open your eyes and see what I saw. He said, I saw a great multitude. It's interesting that the first vision in, in chapter seven, he sees a limited number of people, 144,000 that were sealed. First, the, the judgment is restrained until the sealing transpires. And there's a limited number of people that are sealed. <clears throat> Only 144,000. 144,000 is a representative number. Remember 12 times 12 is 144. And so it's 12,000 from all of the 12 tribes of Israel. And there's some interesting things going on there as well. And the 12 tribes of Israel are representative of the people of God in all places and at all times. That is, this is a multi-ethnic Israel. This is a a, a uh, an Israel from all over the world, from every nation under heaven. And so first he sees the limited number of them, which means that from an earthly perspective, there is a limited number of individuals who are going to believe in Jesus. Not everybody is going to believe in Jesus and we've got to keep that in mind, especially as we do the work of evangelism because as we share the gospel, it is not our job to determine the result. God determines the result. Our job is to be faithful to the command to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth. And so there's a limited number of people who believe but then when John gets to heaven, that 144,000, he sees it from heaven's perspective. It's a multitude that no one can count. And this is the other side of it, that that limited number comprises a great multitude. The multitude that no one can count is the 144,000. And so 144,000 simply represents the fact that there's a limited number of people who are going to believe, but the great multitude uh, represents the fact that when we get to heaven and we see how many have believed, it's going to be a sea of peoples, an uncountable number of people. So no one could count the number, and they're of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues. Doesn't that seem a bit redundant? The the number of people uh, are comprised of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues. Doesn't it seem like he could have just said one of those words? They were from all, na- all nations. Or he could have said from every tribe. Or he could have said from all peoples. Or he could have just said from every tongue and every language. But he gives... Four different designations of all nations, all tribes, all peoples, and all tongues. Why the redundancy? The point he's making is that there is no human form of categorization that could categorize the different kinds of people that are gathered before the throne of God in this vision. Meaning people from everywhere, from all kinds. It means that the segregation of the Sunday morning worship hour is over. It means that on the other side, there is no white church and no black church and no Hispanic church, no Latin church, no Asian church, no Korean church, no Chinese church. It's just the church and the the number is uncountable and the categories are unquantifiable. You you can't categorize them. We are just gathered around the throne instead of gathering around our ethnicities and our, our tribes and our tongues. Isn't that beautiful? That's powerful. They're clothed in white robes. White robes, what we're going to find throughout the book of Revelation, represents the righteous acts or the righteous works of the church, of the people of God. And those righteous works of the church represent two things. Number one, it represents personal purity. They're they're wearing white robes, which means they walk in purity. And number two, it represents public exploits. So personal purity and public exploits. The righteous acts of the, of the saints are not just the, that they walk in purity, but that they perform great things. Uh, um, Ephesians chapter uh, 2, verse 10 um, says, you are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God himself ordained for you to walk in since the world began. And then they've got palm branches in their hands. What do the palm branches represent? Do you remember the triumphal entry when Jesus entered into Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives? He was riding on the donkey. And uh, the people took palm branches and waved them and laid them on the path ahead of him. And they cried out, save now, Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David, which means save now. So the palm branch in the Greco-Roman Empire was a a symbol of victory. And actually in the Olympic Games and in the arena, the, the victors, they would wave palm branches to signify The victory of the victors. The people of God have palm branches in their hand in this vision because um, they are standing in the victory of Christ. Jesus is the victor. The the lion of the tribe of Judah has prevailed. This is actually a continuation of the vision that he saw in chapter 5 of the throne room. The lamb who was slain. He is worthy to receive blessing and honor, glory, and dominion and power. And so they're waving palm branches in their hands, meaning not only is the lamb victorious, but because we declare the victory of the lamb, we stand in his victory, we are victorious as well. And so they're, they're waving palm branches in their hands, verse 10, and crying out with a loud voice saying, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. We said before, that in, in uh, the, the Greco-Roman world, the emperors, whenever the emperor would enter into the great hall or into an arena um, or into a city, the people would cry out, salvation belongs to you. And they would cry out, uh, Caesar Curios," meaning Caesar is Lord. And they would cry out, salvation belongs to you. And they would cry out, worthy, worthy. But here in heaven, they're not crying out, worthy is Caesar. They're crying out, worthy is the lamb. And they're not crying out, salvation belongs to Caesar. They're crying out, salvation belongs to our God. You see, what John is trying to do is to lift the eye. What what, Really, what Jesus is doing in this revelation through John to the people of God is seeking to lift their eyes above their political preoccupations Many of them once again had begun to look for a political salvation. And this was the problem in first century Israel as well. This is why the Pharisees and Sadducees would not accept Jesus as their Messiah. Because what they were looking for was a political leader. What they were looking for was a military hero. What they were looking for was someone who would free them from the occupation of Rome and reestablish the physical kingdom of Israel, not realizing that that's how God acted in Israel in books one through six. But with the coming of Jesus, we entered into book seven. And in book seven, God does not simply raise up his children and empower them to bring victory on his behalf, but God himself comes on the scene to restore order. And he does so not by giving victory to this political group or that political group, not by restoring this kingdom or that kingdom, but by bringing about a kingdom that is not of this world and ultimately bringing about a new heaven and a new earth. We're getting somewhere. Stay with me. Are you okay? Verse 11. All the angels stood around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures. So the angels are surrounding the throne and the elders and the four living creatures but the elders and the four living creatures are in the vicinity of the throne they're like right up there on the platform that ho- that holds the throne and the angels are standing around it which symbolizes that the elders which represents the church we said and the four living creatures which represents the entire created order are brought closer to the throne than the angels The angels are surrounding us. We're brought into the very vicinity of the throne. And the angels fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, amen. Do you know what the word amen means? It means so be it, or it is so. Or another way they would say in the black church is that's right, that's right, say that, say that. For sure, whatever, right? Amen, blessing. Literally, they're saying amen to the last statement, salvation belongs to our God and the angels go, amen. Look at this, the multitude of believers, they're crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb and the angels cry out, amen. (laughs) Literally, this is a worship service going on and there's this liturgy happening where the people of God are crying out, salvation belongs to our God, and the angels are responding, Amen! Blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving, honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. It starts with an Amen, in which they're saying Amen to the church, and then it ends with an Amen, in which they're saying Amen to their own statement. Now, Jesus, the double amen, was actually uh, something that Jesus used all the time. If you read through the Gospels and you see Jesus saying, um, in the King James Version, it says, Verily, verily, I say unto you. Um, Also, uh, other translations, Truly, truly, I say unto you. Whenever you see a truly, truly or a verily, verily, I say unto you, what it says there in the Greek is, Amen, amen, I say unto you. And when Jesus gives a double amen, before he says something, what he's literally saying is, I not only agree with what I'm about to say, but I guarantee what I'm about to say because I have the power to perform what I'm about to say. But here the angels put an amen at the beginning of their statement and at the end of their statement. It's The statement is sandwiched between two amens. And so there's the added emphasis there. All right, let's move on then one of the elders said to me who are these arrayed in white robes and where did they come from who are these arrayed in white robes and where did they come from it's interesting to me that he says who are these well it's i mean you know it's obvious like these are it's a multitude no one can count out of every tongue tribe and nation they came out of every tongue tribe kindred and nation and uh, they're they're worshiping this is the church this is the It's obvious who they are, but the elder says, remember the elders represent the church too. This is a member of the church who's speaking to John and John says, sir, you know, which goes back to Ezekiel in the valley of dry bones. He sees a valley that's full of bones and God speaks to him and says, son of man, can these bones live? And Ezekiel says, Lord, you know, this is literally what John is saying here, sir, you know, meaning, I don't know, I thought I knew, (laughs) But apparently you're going to tell me. And here's where we come to. So he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Okay, I'm going to look at this just for a second because I think this is so important. These are the ones who come out. First of all, the word Come out there in the Greek is a continuous action verb. These are the ones who are coming out of the great tribulation. Meaning, at the moment that the elder speaks this to John, it's happening right now. John, these are those who are coming out of the great tribulation. Meaning that when John sent this to the churches, and they read it to the churches, the churches would have self-identified. These are the ones who are coming out of the great tribulation. He's talking about us. We're coming out of the great tribulation. And because it's a continuous action verb, it still applies to us today. So that as we hear this, as we hear these words, we should self-identify. These are the ones who are coming out of the great tribulation, what's happening right now? We are coming out. We are in the process of coming out of the great tribulation. That is throughout our entire lives. The the our, the, the totality of our lives can be defined as coming out of the Great Tribulation, which means that we are living now in the midst of the Great Tribulation. Now I know that there's a lot of interpretations of what the Great Tribulation is. If you are a premillennialist, the premillennialists believe that the Great Tribulation is a literal seven year period of time, broken into two, three and a half year periods. If you are a pre-tribulationist, you believe that God is going to rapture the church before the beginning of that seven year period. If you're a mid-tribulation, you you believe God's gonna rapture the church in the middle of that great tribulation. And if you're a post-tribulationist, you believe that God is going to take the church at the end of that seven year period of time. And if you are an amillennialist, you believe that the great tribulation is ongoing since the beginning, uh, since Jesus Christ came. May I say that I do not fully subscribe to any one of those camps. I think for me, when I read the book of Revelation, my intention is to go back to the first century and hear it the way the members of the early church would have heard it. How would they have heard it? How would they have understood it? And they would not have thought about pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, pre-millennial, amillennial, post-millennial. None of that would have come into their grid. They simply would have self-identified as those coming out of the great tribulation now may I also say that if you subscribe to any one of those views I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with that at all I'm not saying you're wrong or, or that those those views are simply wrong what I'm saying is if you if you get if you put it in your mind however that great tribulation is something that's in the future and that the church doesn't have to worry about because God's gonna rapture us out of here before it happens Um then we're completely missing the point of this passage of Scripture. We are in the process now of coming out of the Great Tribulation. It doesn't mean I subscribe fully. What what I'm simply saying is that if there is a literal seven-year Great Tribulation in the future to come, whatever, we're sealed. We can endure that. We're protected from the wrath of God and we're sealed so that we can endure persecution from the Antichrist. But at this moment right here, and we'll talk about these things more as we go, but at this moment right here, all I'm asking you to do is to self-identify with this statement that we're in that multitude. Why are we in that multitude? Because we are those who are coming out. We're in the process right now of coming out of the great tribulation. And that word great tribulation is megathleipsis. Now, he's already used that word thlipsis, tribulation, earlier when he spoke to the church at Ephesus. And he said, I know your tribulation. I know your thlipsis. That word thlipsis, it means crushing pressure. But thlipsis is a technical term in the New Testament. It's never used of just the everyday cares and trials that every human being has to endure. It's not, it's not the tribulation of having to wake your kids up and get them ready for school. You know, it's not the tribulation of, uh, you know, going on a diet and going to the gym. It's not that. It's not that. It's not that. It's not even the tribulation of enduring sickness and having to go to the hospital and and deal with surgeries. That's not what it is. Thleipseus is the kind of pressure that happens when two kingdoms collide. Now, I want you to get this this picture in your head. Thleipseus is the conflict that transpires when two kingdoms collide. If you can imagine a battlefield, where two armies converge on one another. And, and at that point where those two armies collide with one another, that's where we are right now. We are down on the battlefield, on the front line, and we are colliding with the kingdom of darkness. And in that fray, here's the key, in that fray, in that ba- if you were on the battlefield, you wouldn't know in the midst of that fight whether your side is victorious or not. Because around you there's flashing swords and there's there's flesh that's being torn open and, and in the heat of the battle, you have no way of knowing, are we victorious or not? Matter of fact, the battle might be so hot around you that it feels like you're losing. But the king who stands back on the hill and looks down at the battle, from that vantage point can tell which side is winning the battle. The whole point of this vision is that those of us who are down on the front line fighting the warfare, we live beneath the smoke and we cannot see. Sometimes it feels like we're being defeated, that the kingdom of darkness is overthrowing us. And that's how it must have felt for the people of God in the first century under the reign of Domitian, the evil emperor of Rome at the time. Who was massacring Christians? He had massacred forty thousand Christians. Christians were were arbitrarily having their property seized, and they were being persecuted. They were being harassed by Roman soldiers, and arrested, and and um, informed on, and uh, for for not participating in in uh, paganism. The vision from heaven is simple. I know you're in the midst of the Great Thelipses, the Mega thlipses, the Great Tribulation. I know you're feeling the heat of the battle as the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness are colliding. But the book of Revelation is God's invitation to us to arise above the smoke and to see and to hear that what God sees is a multitude that no one can count out of every tongue, tribe, kindred, and nation gathered around the throne in worship. And John literally says to the believers, I know you feel like you're on the battlefield in the middle of a war right now, but let me tell you where you really are. You're coming out of the great tribulation. And then he goes on to say, and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. He goes from a continuous action verb to a completed action verb. You are coming out of the great tribulation. It's a process. But you have washed your robes and made them white. It's an event. It's done. Isn't that crazy? We would tend to think the opposite. Like we come out of trouble and go, Ooh, I'm glad that's over. But as God purges us of sin, we're like, man, that's going to be an ongoing process but literally he says from heaven's perspective, that's a completed work. Our sanctification was completed the day the Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. And yes, from our perspective, it's it's a process, but God wants us to get it in our minds and see it from his perspective that it's done. Amen. Therefore, they are before the throne of God. And serve him day and night in his temple they are before the throne of God once again another completed action verb it's not a process they're not going to be there one day they are before the throne of God. They are coming out. You're coming out of the great tribulation. That's just a process, that's an ongoing process until Jesus comes and sets everything right, until the lion of the tribe of Judah comes and brings about a new heaven and a new earth. You are coming out of the great tribulation. It's a process, it's continuous action. But right now, in the midst of it, you already are before the throne of God and serve him day and night. God wants us to lift our eyes above the smoke and see that, especially us in America, we feel like we're living in conflict between conservatives and liberals. We think we're living in conflict between uh, Republicans and Democrats. We think we're living in conflict between one group and another group. But in, in fact, yes, we're living in great tribulation. But where we are located and where we are situated right now, if our eyes would be lifted above the smoke, is before the throne of God. And serve him day and night. That word serve, latreia, in the Greek. Latreia, there's two Greek words for worship. The first is proskuneo which means to lay prostrate. It means to fall on your face. It's a representative form of worship. When you're singing a worship song and you lift your hands, that's proskuneo. When you're singing a worship song and you fall on your knees, that's proskuneo. And everything that you do to express yourself in the Sunday service, that's proskuneo. But when you leave the Sunday service and you go out on the street and share the gospel with somebody, that's latreia. When you serve your wife or your, your child, when you're even when you're tired, that's latreia. That is, everything that you do, that active service, it's not symbolic, it's literally actively serving God. That's what the priests did in the tabernacle of Moses and in the temple. They did Latreia, but when the gathering came together and lifted their hands, that was proskuneo. It says, these, they serve him day and night remember romans chapter chapter 12 verse 1 i beseech you therefore brethren by the mercies of god that you present your bodies a living sacrifice holy and acceptable unto god this is your spiritual act of worship and the word worship there is latreia paul says your latreia is the presentation of your body to god as a living sacrifice and john says he sees them he says they are before the throne of god and they serve him day and night in his temple and he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. Literally, it says here, he who sits on the throne will tabernacle over them. He who sits on the throne will tabernacle over them. The picture is the people of Israel coming out of Egypt and the glory of God was with them as a cloud by day and a fire by night. And where was the cloud and the fire? over the tabernacle. The tabernacle was the locus of the dwelling place of God. That's how he dwelt among them. And the people of God, they looked to the tabernacle and the glory over the tabernacle. And when the glory moved, they picked up the tents of the tabernacle and they moved with the glory. And the entire camp of Israel moved with the glory. The tabernacle moved, the whole, t- the whole camp would move. The whole camp, the whole people of God followed the glory. He who sits on the throne will tabernacle over them Meaning that we are now the tabernacle. We, the people of God, the temple of the Holy Spirit, he who sits on the throne will tabernacle over them. We must lift our eyes above our current political situation. We must lift our eyes above the tension. We must stop arguing on Facebook. We must stop fighting and we must stop bickering and we must stop dividing. And we must lift our eyes and see that the one who sits on the throne is tabernacling over us. We've got to stop looking this way and start looking this way. If we would look up, we would see the glory of God tabernacling over us, dwelling over us. It's his very presence, and we've lost sight of the throne. Literally, when it says they will, they will, they are before the throne of God. That word before the throne literally means in view of the throne of God. They live in view of the throne of God, which means that they have, they've been given the privilege to see the throne of God, to open their eyes and see. See the throne of God. Listen, we live in view of the throne of God and God himself is tabernacling over us, but we've got to lift our eyes above the smoke. We've got to start looking up. Verse 16. They shall neither hunger anymore nor thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat. Here's the promise, they shall hunger no more, neither shall they thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them, nor any heat. Three promises here. Number one, he's going to satisfy your hunger. Number two, he's going to satiate your thirst. And number three, he's going to shield you, protect you from danger. It seems like this is a contradiction, isn't it? Because what we're literally told in this passage of scripture is we've got to come through the great tribulation. We've got to endure it. First, we're told we're we're sealed, which means we're protected from the wrath of God and we're given endurance in the face of persecution. But then it says, but we still got to come through the great tribulation, which means that even though we're sealed, we're not... Isolated. What's the word I'm looking for? Even though we're sealed, we're not insulated. The fact that we're sealed doesn't mean we don't have to walk through trial. But then he ends with this promise. They shall hunger no more, neither shall they thirst anymore, nor shall the sun strike them, nor any heat. Which means he promises, I'm going to feed you, I'm going to give you drink, and I'm going to shield you and I'm going to protect you. Which is it? Is he going to shield us? Or is he going to empower us to walk through the great tribulation? And the answer is yes. And this is the great conflict of the life of every believer. That sometimes we walk through great trouble that we thought God would would shield us from, don't we? And sometimes we walk through stuff and I'm like, I never thought God would let me walk through that. I thought he would shield me from that. I thought he would protect me from that. I never thought I would have to go through that. And then other times he shields us from stuff that we thought we would have to walk through. We say, man, I thought I just had to deal with that. But he shielded me from that. Isn't that crazy? And the point of the matter is both of these things are true. There's stuff you got to walk through and there's stuff God will shield you from. Which is which? That's for God to determine. God does not delegate the answer to that question. It's all written in the scroll. But what's the point? The whole point of the whole chapter is that His promise is true and that whether we have to walk through stuff or not, we're sealed. We're sealed, which means that we are His inviolable possession. It means that nothing and no one can take us out of his hand. And now we get to verse 17, and this is the key. Remember we said we're looking at the seven visions of Jesus and the seven visions of the church, but so far all we've seen is the church. John is seeing Jesus, the lamb, in the midst of the throne, in this vision, but Jesus is completely inactive here. It's all about the church. But now he ends by speaking of the lamb. For the lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of waters. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. What is he saying? This is why Revelation is is a, a shouting book for believers. The devil would lie to you and tell you it's a scary book. Revelation is a this is a this is a shouting passage this is this is victory this is victory the likes of which transcend anything that you could ever imagine literally the promise of this chapter of scripture is that you're sealed you're protected and you've been given great endurance you're going to go through the great tribulation but even in the midst of tribulation your robes are washed and you're going to live before the throne of God day and night serving him And at the end of the day, you're gonna hunger no more. You're gonna thirst no more. And the sun will not strike you nor any scorching heat. Why? Because the lamb who is in the middle of the throne will be your shepherd. And he's gonna lead you to living fountains of waters. Isn't this what David was getting to when he said, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And then he talked about how we still got to go through stuff. He said, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why do I fear no evil? Because you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And then he said, you prepare a table before me. In the presence of my enemies you anoint my head with oil my cup runs over surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and i will dwell in the house of the lord forever he said the lamb who is in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and will lead them to fountains of living water and God himself will wipe away every tear from our eyes. It is important for us to get it in our heads that we're in book seven. This is not books one, two, three, four, five, or six. We're in book seven, which means that only God can set it right. Does that mean that we should be politically inactive? No, absolutely not. We still got to do our parts. The same way, if you read book seven of the Chronicles of Narnia, the kids had to do their part too. Those those that the Lord invited, Aslan invited them from their world. They had to participate, but they could not fix it. And I know for myself, sometimes I think if I speak. Everything's supposed to change because I spoke. But the Lord showed me so clearly this week. We're in Book 7, and only God can fix it. But what's our responsibility? Our responsibility is to keep our eyes above the smoke. we got to live above the smoke. We gotta keep our eyes, we've gotta lift up our eyes because when you go down beneath the smoke, you get confused. You're on that battlefield on the front line and there's flashing swords and you don't know whether you're victorious or defeated. You don't know whether you've been abandoned and forsaken or whether you're, you don't know, you don't know the state of it because you're in the midst of the battle but God wants to lift up our eyes. Even while we're in the midst of, our, of the battle, he wants to lift up our eyes to see that there's palm branches in our hands. We're victorious that our robes are washed, literally bathed in the blood of the lamb. They have bathed, they have dipped, they plunged their robes, it literally says, in the blood of the lamb. That is, we've been washed because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We have been washed because he gave his life on the cross. All of this comes from the sacrifice of Christ. Our victory comes from the sacrifice of Christ. That we are sealed because of the sacrifice of Christ. Our protection comes from the sacrifice of Christ. The endurance, it comes from the sacrifice of Christ. Our victory over death, it comes from the sacrifice of Christ and so we've got to lift up our eyes. We have been seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus par above all dominion and might, power principality, dominion and might in every name that is named both in this age and that which is to come. We have been invested with great power and great kingdom authority but we must understand that for all of the power and all of the kingdom authority that we have been given, the one thing that we have not been given is the power of to fix our world. Our job is not to fix our world, not to fix our nation, not to fix our land. Our job is to to keep our eyes on the throne, to live before the throne day and night, and to serve Him day and night. And how do we serve Him? We're simply looking to Him and seeking to be obedient to His commands. Lord, make me obedient to say what You would have me to say, to do what You would have me to do. And at the end of the day, it's not about you being right or me being right. It's about Jesus coming to make all things right, to bring about a new heaven and a new earth. Amen. Amen.